Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is all true. Um, you have revealed yourself and you revealed your working in the world and you have given us instruction that we need to follow. I pray that you would guide us, guide my words um, as I try to communicate here. Um, give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, um, that we would seek to live out what you have to say for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start off by telling you my favorite joke. A man goes to the doctor, and he says, every time I drink coffee, I get a stabbing pain in my right eye. What can you do to help me, doctor? And the doctor says, well... Take the spoon out of your cup. I didn't say it was a great joke. I said it was my favorite. Uh, took it a little slow there. Um, I've been spending too much time around Rob, I think, maybe. But um, I tell you that joke for two reasons. One, I, I just like it, and this seemed like a good opportunity to share it. But number two, um, it's a great example of going about doing something in a way that just isn't going to work. Approaching something the wrong way that just ends in futility. Um, and as we're in the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew chapter 5, um, we're, gonna, we're continuing to look at some things that Jesus is showing how wrong-headed it is to try to be righteous before God by external measures. It just doesn't work. Just like drinking coffee with a spoon in it is always going to end in injury. <laughs> Um, we're going to look at two different topics that are part of six different examples that Jesus gives um, for how the righteousness that God requires has to exceed the righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees were demanding in Jesus' day. These people who knew the Old Testament law, yet were using the Old Testament law in order to get what they wanted to do. They were externally righteous, outwardly righteous, but Jesus later calls them whitewashed tombs. Everything looks great on the outside, looks horrible, and things are dying inside. We looked at anger last week. Today we're looking at lust and divorce. Um, before we get into that, we're going to get into some scriptures that give us some good background for understanding how the disciples would have heard this. But before we even do that, I want us to kind of think about a couple different groups of people, and I want to acknowledge some things. First of all, Jesus approaches this from the perspective of people who are married. And obviously, not everybody in this room is married, right? So, what do we do? Hang in there. God calls both married people and unmarried people to purity. Some of you aren't married now, but will be someday. The time to come to convictions about this kind of stuff is now. Not when you're in the middle of it. Some of us never will be married or won't be again. You still have an opportunity to disciple people. We need to know what the scripture says, all of us. Um, as we think about the, these kinds of things, it might get a little painful to think about because of our personal experiences, right? A lot of us have sexual sin in our past, or maybe even in our present. 
whether it's in something we did or something we've thought. Um, there are those for whom that div- divorce ship is sailed long ago. There's no going back. Um, some who were at fault, some who, are, who, are, who weren't. Um, and, I, and I don't want us to get beat up today, okay? Um, this is the kind of passage that we could just be like, bam. You know, you've read that. Like, Jesus doesn't pull any punches here, okay? Um, and I want us to remember that we don't gain anything when we minimize what the Scripture says. When the Scripture talks about sin, it really is that bad. Our sin as human beings, whether it's this stuff or anything else, it's great, right? Our sin is great. But as we remember today, God's grace is greater. So we need to keep that in mind as we look at this. Um, We celebrate at the table that even though our sin is great, God's grace is greater. What Jesus did on the cross covers our sin. Another quick thing I want to, to acknowledge is that some of us have experienced or are experiencing great hurt as a result of someone else's sin in this area. Um, I'm sorry for that. I hope that what we talk about helps you as you think through these things. Um, So the first thing we're going to do is, real quick, cover some basic principles that are background to what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5. Um, and the first is this. Turn to Genesis 2.24. And that's the t- two shall become one. Um, right at the very beginning, this is what, Jesus, what God says about marriage. Um, after Adam and Eve come together, there's a summary verse that says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One new family unit. One plus one equals one. And this is a really basic thing that we need to understand. And that when, when people get married, a man and a woman get married, something new and unique is formed. And that entity, that institution is one of the things that God sets us up is, is one of the basic building blocks of human flourishing that God sets up, right? Not everybody's going to be married, but a lot of us are, and that's just sort of how God designed it to work. Um, and that institution has, has boundaries. There's things that happen inside of marriage that should only happen inside of marriage. Um, that's the way the Bible talks about sex. That sex is for marriage and only for marriage. Um, any sexual activity outside of that bounds of marriage is, is sin. And that we are not to have activity, sexual activity outside of that bounds. It's the one place God designed for that to be appropriate. Marriage is a lot, about a lot more than that, though. Um, there's, there's something unique and special about what God has made in marriage. One of the things that's special about that is that, our second thing, marriage is a picture. 
Marriage is a picture. Um, in Ephesians chapter 5, um, we're not going to really dive deep in there because that's fraught with landmines um, and we don't have time to deal with all those. Um, but the basic idea in Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about how wives are to submit to their husbands, husbands are to love their wives, and whatever that actually looks like, it is meant to point us toward the reality of the relationship between Jesus and the church. It says in verse 23, husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then in for, moving along, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Um, then he's skipping. He, he quotes that same verse in Genesis, and it says in verse 32, This mystery... Is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Um, marriage is meant to point to a bigger reality than, than just that marriage. Marriage isn't about us. It's a means for us to glorify God and show him to the world. The way the husbands and wives are to live together and love one another, to serve one another, is supposed to point to Jesus. When we faithfully live out God's design for marriage, it's one way that we show Jesus to the world. And this high value that God has made this new institution, that this institution is supposed to be a picture, leads to some of the Restrictions that we see around marriage in, in the Old Testament and the rest of the scriptures. Um, this last thing, uh, not last thing, <laughs> Exodus 20, 14, one of the Ten Commandments, says you shall not commit adultery. We have this list of commands that God gives to his people Israel, and he says you shall not commit adultery. You shall not be unfaithful to the marriage that you're in. Don't. Be unfaithful to your marriage. That's one of the Ten Commandments. The one right before this is, you shall not murder. We saw how um, Jesus kind of addressed that in regards to anger last week. This idea, you shall not commit adultery, is very central to what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5. He says, don't break the covenant you made to your spouse by being unfaithful. So two shall become one. Marriage is a picture. You shall not commit adultery. Last of our starting points is that God hates divorce. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, it says this. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Pay attention to your conscience and do not be unfaithful. What that verse says is that divorce is not God's ideal. God has made a high marriage ideal of marriage that is faithful and lasts until death.
I mean, that doesn't mean that in a sin-filled world it doesn't happen. And the Bible's actually pretty realistic about that, and we're going to get to that. Um, but when the Scripture says that God hates something, we should listen, right? In Matthew chapter 19, I'm not going to steal Rob's thunder from when he preaches this passage in a few months, but um, this is not the only passage that we're, gonna, that we're looking at in Matthew 5. is not the only passage that deals with divorce um, in the book of Matthew even. Um, in fact, he deals with it much more in chapter 19. But one thing that it says at the end of that passage, I don't think I actually put it in here. Um, it's, verse, it's a verse that we probably know from our marriage ceremonies. Um, it says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Divorce shouldn't be near the top of our list for ways to deal with problems in marriage. God doesn't want us that for us. Um, throughout the Old Testament, the picture of the relationship between Israel and its God is that of an unfaithful spouse as they go and worship other gods besides the one true God. Um, this is an issue that God cares about. And so as we come to our passage today in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is addressing um, some major issues that, they might, he, that were occurring in his day about the understanding of what it means to be righteous before God and actually keep that seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Um, remember that the Pharisees were very much concerned about the external appearance that they were keeping God's law, that they were righteous, that they were doing what God wanted them to do. And Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery in verse 27 of Matthew 5. In verse 31 he says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus is going to address some inadequate understandings of what it means to fulfill this commandment, to be faithful in marriage. He's going to get to the heart of what that means. Their understanding is first that only, oh yeah, actually, I just read that, but um, only those who commit a physical act are those who are guilty of adultery. That's the understanding that seems apparent from the way that Jesus um, talks about this stuff. Their understanding seems to be that someone is only culpable for adultery when they physically have sexual relations with someone who's not their spouse. And so if you're 
trying to determine, am I breaking the seventh commandment? That's pretty easy to figure out if you are, right? If that's the standard. Did I physically do something with that person? No, then I'm good. Oh, yes, you did. So therefore, you're a lawbreaker. You're no longer righteous before the law. You're no longer righteous before God. That's because, remember, they care about if you break the law, you're no longer righteous before God. So their first misunderstanding is that only those who commit a physical act are guilty of adultery. So they think you've got to have it go something like this. That's what makes you guilty. Second misunderstanding. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. There actually are divorce procedures that are mentioned in the Old Testament law. Um, This is a quote from the book of Deuteronomy, um, chapter 24. We're not going to turn there, um, but... That certificate of divorce is something that's mentioned in Matthew 19, as I think Matthew 19 as well. Um, but their understanding seems to be that as long as they go through the correct legal procedures, as long as they do the procedure of actually giving a legal document that says, I'm divorcing you, then... Then, then that's okay. I'm still righteous according to the law. I still haven't broken that seventh commandment. I still haven't committed adultery. They, they, they're thinking, as long as I go through the right process, I'm free to divorce, I'm free to remarry according to my own desires. This document that it's talking about, the certificate of divorce, Um, Some of your translations may say legal document. There's some other ways that we've thought about this. But basically, this was giving permission for that other person to go and marry someone else. Um, This is to um, protect the innocent party in a situation like this. And pretty much in the Old Testament, the way that it talks about these things is talking about men divorcing women. Okay, that's because of the culture of the time, um, the way that they thought about um, these sorts of things were very much the men had the power, the women didn't. Um, but in, so in, 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 this, in this setting, for someone to be divorced and not have any legal documentation of that made them a social, social, social pariah. They were thought of as outside the bounds of good society. And what this legal document would let them do would, would say, no, I, this person has been given the right to remarry by their spouse who put them away. There's debate even in Jesus' day, that's in chapter 19, we're going to get to that um, later, about what exactly constituted grounds for this kind of divorce. Um, But the idea is basically that they assume that divorce is a right. And that so long as you follow the right procedures and then you have the right grounds for it, then you're all right. 
You can move on to someone else. We see these misunderstandings that you only have to commit a physical act, that you have to, as long as you follow the right legal procedure. Jesus is going to come down hard on that kind of attitude. <laughs> um, but you see how it's like, have you ever played a game with someone who uses the rules for their benefit and for your disadvantage? Some of you probably experienced that this last week, get together with family of Thanksgiving, right? Anybody? Anybody play board games with their family this week? Um, I'm not going to rat out which of my siblings it is that would typically do that. Um, but that's what the Pharisees were doing. They're using the law to get what they want and still appear righteous. And Jesus takes those assumptions. They, 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 yeah. I always forget. I'm not used to you moving slides. This is, this is the idea. As long as you've got the legal document, you're good. Jesus corrects that. He says, you've, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Our first correction of this, Jesus is showing them the spirit of the law, what the law is really all about. The law isn't about just not physically having sexual relationship with someone else who's not your spouse. He also says this, that cultivating illicit sexual desire also breaks the law. Lust breaks that same law. He tells them that contrary to their understanding, they could also be committing adultery in their hearts by looking with lust at a woman. Now let's break that down, that verse. It says, I say to you that everyone who looks, everyone who looks at a woman, is that where that ends? No. Another translation says, looks at a woman to desire. This says in the ESV, looks at a woman with lustful intent. There's other versions out there. But the basic idea is that there's an action looking, but there's a purpose behind that action. This, this word that we translate desire or lust, um, it's, it's epithumia. You don't need to know that. But it's a word that can be translated desire in a neutral sense. We see it all over the place in Scripture. Um, at the same time, it's also the same word that we would find it in Exodus chapter 20, which is the Ten Commandments, under the Tenth Commandment. Do not covet. That's the same word. And anyway, I think we're definitely talking about a negative sense here. Um, and that's the way our translations get, get to it. Um, and lust is really breaking both of those commandments. It says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Um, 
committing adultery, covenant, like, when we do this action that's described in this verse, when we look with the intent for, of lust, we're breaking both of those things. Now, a couple, couple, couple things to think about. This is not talking about simply noticing somebody. Like, this is not about that first accidental look, okay? Like, you notice somebody, you notice somebody. That's, but the reason we sometimes conflate those two things is that, ha- that switch happens really quick, doesn't it? We move from noticing something to uh, now the reason I'm looking isn't good. There's, there's purpose that is behind this. Um, and, and Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, what, in the next bit, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uncomfortable yet? (laughs) Don't worry, it's going to get worse before it gets better. (laughs) Um, Committed adultery in their heart. They're guilty of breaking the law. They're no longer righteous. Remember, this is what the Pharisees really care about. So he's saying, by what happens internally that no one else can see, I can be guilty of breaking this law. Let's think about some of the spheres where it's possible for this to happen. Um, in the first century, you're thinking in person, right? Um, proximity isn't really necessary for us, is it? We don't have to be in the same place. Um, Although, actually, it never really was necessary, right? Because if this is happening in our head and in our heart, really, when we harbor and dwell on sexual fantasy with someone who's not our own spouse, we've done exactly what Jesus is talking about here. It's sin. We're lawbreakers. doesn't matter whether it was someone we saw in person, on a screen, or even just something made up in our mind. Some things to think about. When we feed our minds things that encourage us to think this way about people, we're sinning too. Um, When we're looking with the intent to desire, looking with lustful intent, as the ESV says, You know, it doesn't have to be something that's blatantly out of bounds, like going to a strip club or looking at pornography. Those are like, obviously, sin. It doesn't have to be those things. It can be the kinds of things we watch on TV. The reason why we watch something matters. It could be a graphic romance novel. When we go into a situation when lust is our purpose, or we make a switch in the middle of a situation where it's no longer innocent, then we're sinning. We're doing exactly what he's talking about here. 
What goes on in our minds and in our hearts, it matters to God. He thinks so highly of marriage that he wants our thoughts and our desires to match up with his ideals for marriage. And contrary to what appears to be what the Pharisees thought, we're not okay just as long as we don't act on what's going on in our head and our heart. Like I said, I'm comfortable. Yeah. I don't like where this leaves me either. We're going to skip over verses 29 and 30 and come back to them. Um, but now we're going to get to this, the second thing that he corrects. He moves on to verse 32. It says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You know, he confronts their assumption that they have the right to divorce, and that so long as they follow the right procedures and have the right grounds, then they're okay. Jesus makes a sweeping statement (laughs) that actually makes almost all reasons for divorce not valid to God. We're going to get to some exceptions in a second, but that's not the point of what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is meaning to say, don't get divorced. (laughs) Basically, divorce shouldn't really happen. Now, um, there's one thing that I want to address here that says, I, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. Now, what is the, why, why would you say make there? That's a weird way for us to think about it, right? Um, in that culture of first century Israel, most people were married. Um, that's no longer the case in our culture, right? Like, a lot of people are not married. Um, but in that culture, almost everybody was. And so the general assumption, if that a woman was divorced, and that's the example that Jesus gives, so that's what we're going to stick with, um, she was given the freedom to marry someone else, and that if she was given that freedom, she would marry someone else. Um, And to divorce someone is going to put them in a position where they have to break that commandment. You shall not commit adultery. If that's not legit, as Jesus is saying that it's not, then that puts them in a position where, in that culture, they're going to have to. Unless we think that it's only about women, he says, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Whoever's been, if a a woman leaves her husband for less than biblical reasons, and we're going to get to those in a second, I promise, um, you're not free to marry her. So Jesus' basic teaching here, basic teaching, we're going to get to the exceptions in a second, but his basic teaching is that they're going to be faithful to keep the seventh commandment that says you shall not commit adultery, then they're not going to be allowed to divorce. That's the basic understanding. Now, limited exceptions do apply, except on the ground of sexual immorality. 
there's one exception that Jesus gives. Sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia. We get our word pornography from that. Um, it's marital unfaithfulness. There's all, all these different ways that we could kind of, it's a big category. Um, and the idea here is that it's, it's sexual sin in many different forms. And the reason it's an exception is that it's of such magnitude that it makes marriage to that person untenable. So whatever is meant by sexual immorality, it's, that's big enough that that marriage just can't work. It's, it's some way, you know, it, it, it's, it can, pornea is such a big, big bucket term. It's, it's, it's basically all of those things that are inappropriate outside of the bonds of marriage where sexuality happens. Like, all of those things, they all fit into that big bucket category. Um, and the idea here is something has happened, whether before the marriage, whether after the marriage, um, something has happened that just makes that marriage not work. That's the exception. It's so badly broken that it cannot be reconciled. In that case, divorce is allowed. Notice I said allowed. Remember what does God say about divorce? He doesn't like it. He hates it. But it is allowed because sinful stuff happens, right? Sinful stuff happens. And the Bible is very realistic about the sinfulness of humanity. It's not desirable, it's not required, but it is allowed. So that's the exception that shows up in this passage. And we're not going to get into a lot of the other passages that deal with divorce um, and remarriage and all that kind of stuff um, because we, like I said, we're going to get to it again when we get to chapter 19, but I think it's important to note that there is another grounds that's allowed in Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And that is... Um, actually, one other thing I want to say before that. Um, I'm not trying to dwell on the exceptions that much this time because that's not Jesus' point. Jesus is intentionally saying this in a way that hits hard. Um, but there are exceptions. There's the, the one that we just talked about, um, sexual immorality. There's the one that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he specifically mentions, Paul does, um, that when a person becomes a believer after they're married and their spouse doesn't want to stay married to a Christian, then it's okay to let them go. Again, it's not required. Because in the verses before that, um, in verse 12, it says, To the rest I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. 
Um, and the idea is that by staying, you have the opportunity to share the gospel. You may have the opportunity to have a part in God saving that person by staying. So those are the two clear grounds by which a believer can be divorced for biblical reasons. Immorality, abandonment by an unbeliever. They're both clearly breaking the marriage covenant. In both these situations, the believer is to have sought reconciliation as long as it was reasonably possible. But then they just come to the point where it's not a salvageable situation by any reasonable measure. And then those, then those reasons are grounds for divorce. I might get myself in trouble in a second, um, but some Bible teachers have said that abuse and neglect also fall under this umbrella of marriage covenant breaking activities. Like, and I'm going to be honest, I don't know if I can say that they do or they don't. Um, as we look at the scriptures, I, I, I want to be definitive those two that we talked about are the ones where the scriptures are really clear. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's a good idea for me to make a blanket statement about that today. So, I thought about it. I tried. I don't know. I'm going to be honest. Uh, maybe Rob's going to get to that when we get to chapter 19. I hope so. Um, that said, that said, I do want to say something that's not really in this passage, but you don't have to stay and be abused in order to be faithful to the scripture. You don't. Being physically or even legally separated from a given situation with a view towards repentance and genuine sustained change on the part of the, that offending party is totally consistent with Jesus' teaching on marriage. You don't have to stay in a dangerous situation. Reporting your spouse to the authorities because they've broken the law is okay. Um, if you're in that, that kind of position and you need some help, talk to one of the elders. You're going to see them all up here in a minute when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Talk to one of the pastors. We want to do what we can to help. Um, I want to summarize what we have to say about divorce so far. One, Divorce isn't good. Divorce isn't good. Any of the grounds for which divorce is allowable are the result of someone's sin. So whether it's immorality, abandonment, even if we grant that abuse and neglect are reasons, those are all the result of someone's sin. So, those are not things that we should be the cause of, are they? If it's your sin that's leading to a divorce, 
the answer is repent of your sin. A believer is just simply not to be the beginning cause of a divorce, and when we do, it's sinful. Now, if we're in the position where it's the result of someone else's sin, we've done what we can, and there's just no other option, it's not something to be celebrated. It's something to be grieved. Because remember, God hates divorce. We, we saw some exceptions. That blatant sexual sin, adultery, that sexual immorality, that's grounds for divorce. We saw that abandonment by an unbeliever is grounds for divorce. Those are things, ways, reasons that divorce can be allowed under the scripture. Abuse and neglect might be. These are all situations where someone is being sinned against. Again, I say, if you're doing one of these things, repent of your sin. The issue, don't, don't get divorced just to get out of a situation. Deal with your sin. But, one of the things that has undergirded all of this um, teaching about divorce and is, is the assumption, and that's why they have the certificate of divorce in the Old Testament, is that if someone gets divorced for biblical reasons, they do have the right to remarry. Um, I'm not even sure that we have agreement on our pastoral staff about that, but um, I think it's pretty clear. But, as we see in 1 Corinthians 7, where the goal for a Christian who has an unbelieving spouse is that they, be, they come in, into relationship with Jesus and be reconciled. That's the goal. So, as long as reconciliation is really possible, reasonably possible, keep that door open as a believer. Do you have the right to remarry? Sure. Would the gospel maybe call you to do something that might cause you to wait? Maybe. Again, some of these things are really hard to make blanket statements about. Jesus makes a big statement and then makes some ex exceptions, and then we see more in, later in the scripture. But, to sum up what Jesus says in these two paragraphs, don't think that if you avoid a physical act of adultery... Or that if you follow a correct legal procedure, according to the Old Testament law, that you're off the hook for adultery. If you break the spirit of those laws, which is that God wants us to be faithful in marriage. If we break those laws, then we're guilty. If we break that spirit... We're guilty. Now the question is, that leaves us a lot, a lot of us. If we're, whether we're talking about sexual sin in our heart and mind, whether we're talking about how we have lived in the past, whether that leaves a lot of us guilty, doesn't it? 
The question is, what do we do? <laughs> what do we do? Well, the Pharisees would say, well, we got to do things to be externally righteous. And so that, to go back to verse 29, um, Jesus is going to show how the things that they might even go to extremes to do don't really work. It says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. So if you care deeply about being righteous and you think your eye is the problem, what do you do? Get rid of the eye. Because it's right that it's better if you lose one of your body parts than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. Right eye. Okay, right hand. If your right hand causes you to sin, if that's really the reason why you're sinning, cut it off. Throw it away. I'm sorry, this is graphic. This is what Jesus says, not me. Okay. <laughs> it's better that if you lose one of your members, then your whole body go into hell. The problem is, is that really the issue? Your right eye, your right hand. Will that actually fix the problem? No. The sin that he's talking about is something that happens in our hearts and, hearts and minds. These external displays of righteousness aren't going to be enough, even if you go to extremes. That just won't fix the problem. Is it possible that cutting out an eye or cutting off a hand might prevent you from a particular means of sinning for a short time? Sure. Are they ultimately going to work? No. You can't fix a heart problem by dealing with it from the outside. So external righteousness according to the law by doing a bunch of external stuff just doesn't work. And Jesus is... You know, we're going to hit this several times because that's the whole point of this whole six examples is it just doesn't work. But instead of relying on righteousness according to the law, that's external. And I can't remember why I put that slide in. Um, we have to rely on a different kind of righteousness. I love that you read from Romans 3 because that's totally what we're going to read right now. Um, Romans 3. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it. We saw this a few paragraphs ago in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus came to fulfill the law and show what the law is really all about. He's talking about the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Righteousness not based on the law, but the righteousness that comes through faith. There is no distinction. All have sinned. All have sinned. You know, if, if we're honest with ourselves, 
whether it's the sins we're talking about today or it's something else, we are guilty. We, fall, we have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God. And he's talking about a group of people. All, have, all these people he's talking about have sinned and are fallen short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous by God's grace as a gift, not earned by, through the law, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation, as a satisfaction of all that God requires by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So in that, that verse he's saying that the full, the full punishment for sin had not been poured out on the sins that come before Jesus. Um, when they did Old Testament sacrifices, that was just sort of pointing to what Jesus was going to do. That wasn't really dealing with the major problem. He passed over. His, in his divine forbearance, he passed over it, looking forward to Jesus. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. He can be just because he pours out his punishment for sin on Jesus. He can be just and the justifier. He can declare righteous, guilty people on the basis of what Jesus has done. The ones who receive what Jesus has done by faith. So we are guilty. But we can have righteousness. We can stand before God with right standing on the basis of what Jesus has done. So don't rely on external modes of righteousness. Rely on the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus, which is better than any righteousness we could ever work out for ourselves anyway, because he perfectly fulfilled the law. You don't want to rely on your own righteousness. It doesn't work. Jesus is showing that. We want to rely on his. Two more quick things. Big passages, I know, but um, we're just going to basically read through this. Um, when we're relying on Christ's righteousness, that begins a life that is lived by the Spirit. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Um, in Galatians 5, it talks about the work of the Spirit and how that plays out in our life. Um, so let's read that. I say... Walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, some of your translations may say, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So we talked about desire, right? Desire that leaves us guilty, desire that's according to our flesh. And Jesus says, and, and it, uh, the scriptures say um, through Paul, walk by the Spirit, live according to the way of the Spirit, and you won't gratify those desires. We don't have to give in to those desires. Walk by the Spirit. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do as a believer. If you were led by the Spirit, you were not under the law. 
Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, we live according to these ways. We're guilty. We won't enter the kingdom. But when we live by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the product of the life lived by the Spirit, that's what fruit means. The pro- something that which is produced by the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So as we, as we go through life, lean into the areas that the Spirit is working. The Spirit wants us to do. Lean into those things. Um, think about the things that you are doing, the ways that you are spending your time, your money, your energy. Are they producing those fruit of the Spirit? Or are they producing the fruit of the flesh? Well, that super long list of things. We need, to, we need to assess those things. How, um, how, is, how I'm living, is it, am I leaning into what the work of the Holy Spirit has done? Because the Holy Spirit is working in us to change us to the image of Jesus Christ. Um, so that we no longer live according to our flesh, according to our sinful desires, but we live in accordance with the desires that the Spirit produces in us. So lean into the work of the Holy Spirit. And then, the last point. Take decisive action against your sin when it's needed. One thing those two verses, verses 29 and 30, say to us, because these are, this is an idea that's actually repeated several other times in the Gospels, in Jesus' teaching, is that do whatever is necessary. If it really meant cutting out your right eye and cutting off your right hand, if that really is what you need to do to deal with sin, do it. It's, it's not. But be willing to go to the extreme to, to deal with your sin in, in, in real and tangible ways. If you need to stop going places, particular places, in order to deal with your sin, if that, if that would really help, do that. If you need to, oh, I left it down there. You need to throw away your smartphone because of um, the things that we have access to in a few clicks. And you just can't say no right now. Get a dumb phone that can't do that. You know? Are you willing to do what's actually necessary to deal with your sin or are you just playing around with it? Do you want to have an external righteousness that none of the rest of us can see what's going on? Or... Where, where um, you, you just want to look good for other people and we can't see what's really happening? Or do you want the righteousness that God wants from us? Or you want to be working towards that? The Spirit is changing us so that our actions match up with that righteousness that Jesus gives us. That won't be fully completed until we die, but 
He's working on us now. Lean into that work. When that happens, God does something miraculous. When we fight sin, we move in step with the work of the Spirit, God starts to actually change us. Let me pray for us. God, as we come to the table, help us to lean into the work of your Spirit. As we have looked at today, a lot of us are guilty according to this least, least couple passages. You have called us to be faithful. And many of us have not been. Help us rely on the righteousness that Jesus gives us. Rely on your grace. Give us power to change through the work of the Holy Spirit. We love you so much. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.